Hello, my friends. This is Bishop Campbell welcoming you again to a short meditation on the theme of living the Catholic life. This coming Tuesday, that is June the 22nd, we uh, celebrate a feast day of two saints of very, very deep interest. Saints whose names are pretty well known in the English-speaking world, but whose lives give an example that continues to this very day. I'm speaking about the feast day of Saints John Fisher and Thomas More. John Fisher was the Bishop of Rochester in England, the poorest diocese in all of England, and Thomas More was a trained lawyer, also a very deeply uh, profound scholar, who rose to political prominence under Henry VIII and actually became Chancellor of England, in a sense, the king's right hand. Both of these men faced an extraordinary challenge. And it was a decision either to defend the faith or to defend one's worldly position. Now, the character of the two saints, although they were very deep friends, were really rather different. John Fisher was a scholar. He was a great supporter of education, especially at uh, Oxford and Cambridge, and was a deeply pastoral bishop. He was one of those who actually was in residence at his diocese at the time when many of the bishops just gathered around the court of the king. And he had a very deep concern for the education of the clergy as well as the education of those laymen and women who would take a prominent position in their country. More on the other hand, was a layman drawn to marriage, although he did have a long time when he considered whether he had a vocation to the religious life, but became a, a husband, a father, a statesman, but he was also a scholar as well. And like John Fisher, was drawn to what was known as the new learning in the uh, end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century, sometimes known as, as humanism. He was a, a statesman and a keen practitioner of the law. Well, I say that they faced the extraordinary challenge of the decision to defend the faith or to defend one's worldly position because of the desire of the king, and I think you know the story well, Henry VIII, to have his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled so that he might marry Anne Boleyn. He had a very profound desire to have a male heir, which Catherine of Aragon did not provide. And, of course, he was deeply attracted to Anne Boleyn, much to his chagrin later on. But, in fact, in order to marry Anne Boleyn, and in the face of the refusal of the Pope to grant the annulment, he eventually, and of course the details of this are, are fascinating, 
decided uh, simply to throw off papal leadership, have himself declared head of the church in England, and then later that church would declare his first marriage annulled, and he married Anne Boleyn. Well, this is when John Fisher became very deeply involved, and in fact, because of his deep honesty and scholarship, signed his death warrant. Because of his great esteem, John Fisher was asked by Henry VIII to investigate the legitimacy of his marriage to Anne Boleyn, or uh, to Catherine of Aragon, excuse me, because Catherine of Aragon was originally married to his brother, Arthur. Although Arthur died very shortly after the, the ceremony, and Catherine always maintained that the marriage had never been consummated. Well, Henry VIII thought that if John Fisher, well-known and very deeply learned, could provide him with some support, he would have an easier time. Well, John Fisher investigated the whole thing and came to the king and said, My lord, your conscience can be at, uh, at rest. Your marriage to Catherine of Aragon is totally legitimate, and you are truly married to her. Well, that's not what the king uh, wanted to hear. And, in fact, John Fisher was acting as a bishop. He was acting in his pastoral role of proclaiming the faith and of defending it and, of course, supporting those who were trying to live it. And therefore, he could never accept the title for Henry VIII of uh, the head of the church uh, in England. And therefore, because of many political maneuverings, the laws became stricter and, in fact, refusal to accept that title was declared an act of treason. And therefore, John Fisher was condemned to be executed, which he was on June twenty-second, 1535. More, on the other hand, having, of course, family responsibilities, becoming a part of the government— and a very deep understanding of the law, decided that his opposition to the new title would not be in the form of open and public renouncing of it. He simply kept quiet. He resigned his position as chancellor, realizing that he could not, in that official position, support the uh, the future and the aims of Henry VIII. But he thought that the law would provide him a way to live with his conscience and still be free of condemnation of treason. Well, of course, this eventually proved to be impossible. And he too was convicted of treason on a lot of false testimony, and also condemned to die. And before his execution, he declared, I die the good servant of the king, but God's first. And Thomas More then became not only a patron saint of lawyers, but also an exemplar of the political leader 
who in fact wanted uh, to lead through the power of conscience and also in the power of law. <clears throat> now, the feast of of Saints John Fisher and Thomas More is also the beginning of what the American bishops a couple of years ago declared to be the fortnight for religious liberty. And I think the defense of religious liberty is particularly important these days. When, in fact, there is a thrust in secular society to simply push religion to the margins and then completely out of the purview of most political and public and social life. But this defense of religious liberty actually goes back to Pope Gregory the Great, who was Pope between the years 590 and 604 A.D., who defined what he called the liberty of the Church, which has really been a guidepost for the position of the Catholic Church in face of political authority. And he said that there are three fundamental principles to the liberty of the Church. The first is the liberty to determine the leadership and the organization and structure of the Church as the body of Christ, to be free of outside and political authority. Secondly, the liberty to proclaim the gospel, to preach it openly, and in fact this also extended to the freedom to educate, especially the young. And thirdly, the liberty to do the charity of Christ, to live out the commandment uh, of Christ, to be especially concerned with those who are in any deep need, those who have been forgotten, to do that charity of Christ to the world. Now, as I said, these became the three guiding principles of most of the relationship of the Church with political authority, and sometimes it has been a very rocky uh, history. But I add to this the fact uh, that in the United States Constitution, the amend first amendment to this Constitution while it forbids the establishment of any particular uh, religion as the religion of the, the whole nation, it still uh, rejects any sort of curtailing of the free exercise of religion. And I stress this because sometimes political authorities uh, speak about the freedom of worship, which sometimes is a narrowing of the exercise of religion simply to the four walls of a church building. This is a free exercise of religion. And you may note that immediately follows a defense of the freedom of speech. And both of these, I think, belong together because they touch upon Pope St. Gregory the Great's uh, teaching that not only is there a liberty of the church— to live as it ought, to proclaim as it ought, and to speak of it freely. And the final point that I would make is a point that was made by Alexis de Tocqueville in his important book called Democracy in America, where he was really fascinated with the people's 
sense of participation both in uh, society and in the political order. And uh, he asked himself, why is the political order so stable? And his conclusion was that this is, to a great extent, dependent on the religious understanding of the American people. And upon that profound moral and uh, civil attitudes that the American people had not only to themselves, but to their souls, uh, to their faith, and therefore living as a moral people provided that stable foundation for a democracy that could last. And I think it is important to understand that religion is not simply alien to the political order. It is profoundly important not that the church and state should become one, but rather the realization that religion provides the basis of a stable and free people and a stable and free political order. That it is, as a Spanish philosopher wrote in the 19th century, it is important that in a state that there be a profound relationship between the moral standing of the people and the character of the government. And in fact, Donoso Cortez, which is his name, wrote that if a government passes constantly more and more laws, you know that the people have no moral bearing (laughs) because then the political order has to provide a coercive form to maintain that moral stability that the people by their own faith and by their own understanding should maintain. And besides, in a healthy society and political order, there should be between political authority and individual people a number of intermediate authorities that protect both the government and the individual. Intermediate authorities, such as clubs, fraternal organizations, unions, churches, individual associations for the common good. All of these are important to helping an individual define himself in ways that are profoundly important and avoid the only definition as being one of political power. So remember Saints John Fisher and St. Thomas More. We pray for their intercession, and we commit ourselves to a deeper understanding of the religious liberty that we enjoy, but the necessity to defend it. 